At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really fun and exciting show for you today. I have with me three guests who are really fantastic people and have done some really exciting stuff that they're going to talk about today. First, I have one of my own residents, Dr. Tony Wang, and it's really fun. As, as listeners will know, I have had some of my own residents on the show over the years, but not a lot. And so I'm really thrilled to have Tony on. Tony, I've known for a while. He was one of our medical students here at Hopkins and now stayed and is one of our CA1 anesthesia residents. And he's very involved with Wiki Anesthesia, which is what we're going to talk about today. And then I have the two co-founders of Wiki Anesthesia here, we, here with me today as well. So we've got Barrett Larson, who is a clinical assistant professor at Stanford. And we also have Chris Rischel, who is a clinical assistant professor at Stanford as well. So two folks from the West Coast, who um, founded this incredible, um, this incredible thing that you'll hear about today called Wiki Anesthesia. And that's what we're going to talk about. But first, uh, gentlemen, I want to say thanks for coming on the show. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. So let's start off with um, talking about you guys. Tell, uh, just take a turn and each tell the audience a little bit about who you are, you know, kind of what you do, how you got where you are, and, and then, of course, importantly, what role you have and how you got involved in Wiki Anesthesia. Sure. So, uh, so I'm Chris Fischel. So, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a clinical assistant professor in anesthesia at Stanford, uh, neuroanesthesiologist primarily. Uh, as far as how I got involved with Wiki Anesthesia, uh, you know, Barrett and I worked on this for a while now. I serve as the uh, editor in chief for Wiki Anesthesia and also the chief technology officer as well. Uh, prior to getting into medicine, I had a pretty extensive background in computer science. And so sort of bringing all of the, the things that I've learned from all of that into this to try and build a really interesting platform that's hopefully, you know, helpful to the field. And yeah, that, that's, that's, that's how I got into it. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. How about you, Barrett? Uh, yeah, so my uh, in, entire medical career has actually been spent, uh, spent at Stanford. So first as a med student, then as a, a resident, and now as a, a clinical assistant professor. And uh, this idea for, for Wiki Anesthesia started percolating uh, maybe five five years ago or so, just recognizing that it, it seemed like there needed to be a better way to share information on anesthetic protocols quickly, easily, and effectively. And uh, Chris was a, uh, a, a junior uh, resident at the time. We started putting our heads together. And um, next thing you know, we're here on ACRAC telling you about this little thing that we put together. So really awesome. exciting. And Barrett, what kind of uh, anesthesia do you practice clinically primarily? Uh, just, yeah, general. I, I'm not specializing in anything, just general anesthesia. Great. Awesome. And Tony, I know a lot about you, but uh, what do you want to tell the audience about yourself? Thanks, Jed. Um, so yeah, I'm currently an anesthesia resident at Hopkins, uh, actually newly minted CA2. Um, and uh, I do have a little bit of background. I, I was an engineering major in college, worked for a year um, at electronic medical records company. So I have a little bit of tech background as well. But primarily, um, I joined Chris and Barrett in the infancy stages of Wiki Anesthesia because of my interest in education and um, really uh, optimizing the way that we intake our knowledge as, as learners. Um, so now I officially serve as the Director of Residency Engagement. Fantastic. All right. Well, really, again, pleasure to have you guys on the show. So a lot of people are probably out there wondering, what is Wiki Anesthesia? So why don't we start by giving them a little um, take on, on what it is and um, you know, what, what, uh, it might, how it might connect with them. Sure. Yeah, I can, I can take that one. So, uh, I mean, at its core, Wiki Anesthesia really is a, a community. It's a, it's a community that's, that's come together to help make um, anesthesia knowledge more freely and easily accessible. And this uh, community is, is powered by and brought together by the same software that powers Wikipedia. And uh, the software is used to, to crowdsource and publish practical, high-yield information relevant to anesthetic management. So you can think of it, in a sense, as a digital Jaffe manual, uh, if you will. 
And incidentally, uh, Dr. Richard Jaffe, who is also at, at Stanford with us and one of our mentors, um, is incredibly supportive of this initiative. Uh, he wants us to, to wickify uh, you know, his, his Jaffe manual, essentially. He sits on our, our advisory board and is a, a very strong supporter. Um, and I guess just as it relates to the, the organization in general, I want to point out that Wiki Anesthesia has been set up as a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 registered organization. This is a completely non-monetary initiative. Uh, this is uh, free to use. There's no ads. There's no paywalls. Uh, we're not selling any user data. Uh, this really is fundamentally uh, a philanthropic endeavor. Uh, our mission is to is to help democratize anesthesia knowledge, uh, and our intent here is to uh, to help pri- providers uh, to get better care of their patients. That's awesome. Thanks, Barry. Now, just in case anyone out there is wondering what the Jaffe Manual is, no offense to Dr. <laughs> Jaffe, but uh, <laughs> tell them quickly what that is. Chris, you want to take that one? Yeah, well, sure. So it is. Uh, it's a essentially about a three thousand page textbook that is kind of a tome of what at the time of publication is all the plausible surgical procedures that you might be asked to do as an anesthesiologist and the considerations that go into how you would take care of patients undergoing that procedure. Um, Dr. Jaffe is also my fellowship director for neuroanesthesia mm-hmm. as well when I was a fellow. So uh, we've talked a lot about these and there are a lot of challenges related to obviously maintaining a 3000 page textbook is very difficult. And you can imagine there's a lot of redundant information across surgeries because, you know, they're, 20 different kinds of craniotomies you might do. And there's so much overlap between those. But when you turn to the page about that craniotomy, you still have to have that information. So we'll get into a lot of, you know, how we think there are advantages and things that we can build upon that. But uh, yeah, I I think a lot of anesthesiologists have had experience with that book or some similar concept to that book to help them get their footing to approach getting into the ORs and, and doing cases. Great. All right. So Wiki Anesthesia is much like Wikipedia, except instead of being an all-encompassing attempt to cover kind of all knowledge known to mankind, it is specific to anesthesia. Now, how would one get to Wiki Anesthesia if they wanted to do that? I assume it is a URL they can go to. And what is it? Yeah. So it's just wikianesthesia.org. Um, you can also just Google that term, Wiki Anesthesia. You can, you can find us that way as well. Great. All right. So you guys talked a little bit when you were introducing yourselves about the kind of origin of this, um, and we may have covered it all. I just want to give you an opportunity, if there's anything else about kind of how this all got started that you want to say, uh, feel free to share that with, with folks in case there's something we didn't get to. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I guess it should take it a level deeper. So as as Chris and I you know, started uh, bouncing around ideas like five, seven years ago or so, we kind of looking into traditional resources – and we felt like there was some challenge with, with the information that was available. So, you know, it was oftentimes hard to quickly find that little nugget of information that you needed at the point of care when you needed it in order to take care of a, of a patient. Um, we also felt that for these resources, the information wasn't presented in the most systematic, highly organized, most efficient way possible. A lot of the resources that were out there weren't optimized for mobile um, and then sometimes just the information was was generally outdated. And, um, you know, taken together, we just we felt like there was an, an opportunity to create a, a better resource that's optimized for the modern environment, modern learner. Um, we also noticed that a lot of people were using workarounds. So in order to to share anesthetic protocols and case information, people were using Google Docs and, and shared folders and even notes on their on their cell phones, which which is great, but you know these these platforms were just are not optimized for for the use case that we have here. So um, we felt that there was an opportunity to to make knowledge sharing better, faster, easier, and we set out to develop Wiki Anesthesia. We launched officially um, last year, February 2021, and we've got about uh, a thousand members, almost a thousand members now at this point. Um, over 500 articles have been have been created and, and are in various stages of completeness. And then we're also now starting to see institutional adoption at a number of institutions. So obviously it's being used at, at Hopkins, as you guys know, uh, it's being used at Stanford. Um, MGH just recently migrated from their, uh, the wiki that they had been using for, for, for many, many years. They've transitioned that all over to wiki anesthesia now as well. So really great to see the community starting to come together. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, it seems to me it's just it's I mean, of course, these things always seem obvious in retrospect. But I mean, I remember as a resident, even more recently, uh, you know, having going into a case and if there was a protocol, right, if it was an e, there was an ERAS protocol, for example, for for my institution, for that case, it was great. It made it really clear what was expected, what to think about. But if there wasn't, then it was this completely different process of trying to just figure it out, pull it together, talk to someone, who knows? And and you might come up with a different thing every time. Uh, and so it just makes so much sense to say, well, if, if having a protocol works well, why not why not make that translation translatable to all cases? And that seems like what you guys are doing here. Um, That's exactly it. Yeah. So how how does this, it may be obvious, but just let's make it clear. How does Wiki Anesthesia differ from all these other resources that are out there or even from something like the Jaffe Manual? Yeah, so I, I think there's actually kind of a lot to unpack in that question. Um, you know, so just to kind of talk through some of the things that already exist, textbooks would be an example. The Jaffe Manual covers surgical case reference, but uh, there are many other textbooks that cover other types of knowledge and anesthesia as well. And these can be good resources for dedicated study, or maybe if you're kind of early career learning where you really need a lot of dedicated, comprehensive background depth to even begin to think about how you do anesthesia. Um, but it's, it's really impractical to use at the point of care. Certainly lugging around a 3000 page textbook in your bag is not going to work for when you're actually in the OR and textbook companies have tried to modernize textbooks in digital forms, PDFs, and other kind of interactive website type things. But fundamentally, when you create a textbook and you lay it out to be printed on a page, it's just different. It's not in, it doesn't function on a mobile device in particular in a natural, intuitive way. Um, textbooks also have limitations of they're fixed in time by edition. So a new edition may come out once every five years, but between that time, things change and the textbook is not going to change with it. Um, so any kind of updates or errors or anything are going to take a while to see that reflected. And they cost money in one way or another, whether it's, you know, you literally buying your own copy or some institutional subscription that gets you access to that. Um, there are digital resources which have been developed and have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I think one that people would probably think a lot about and we get asked about a lot is open anesthesia. Um, and, you know, I think there's some challenges with open anesthesia as well related to this. One is that it's, it's not really truly open to all for everyone to participate to help author the content. And so you can find articles that are about a topic, but a lot of times you'll actually find several articles on open anesthesia. If you search for aortic stenosis, there's several different articles with overlapping kind of redundant content and people from the community can't come along and say, oh, well, let me just like tidy this up and just put this all in one, you know, cleanly organized thing. Um, and, you know, there's some other issues with it. It's not very mobile optimized. If you do try to access that site on your phone, it's pretty challenging to even get to the content itself. Uh, and part of it is also just a content and philosophical focus. Um, open anesthesia, I think, has really found a, uh, a niche in helping people prep for exams. So they're really focused on things like ITE keywords, which is great and helpful for everyone to study. But we're looking at this a little bit from a different angle that, you know, the actual practice of anesthesia is not a multiple choice question test. It is actually taking care of patients. And, you know, we think that there isn't really a resource that's designed to do that in that same way. Um, things that are a little bit closer to what we might want to think about are things like UpToDate, which does have some really nice review articles related to anesthesia. Um, but there is the inherent paywall that comes with that. And also their anesthesia specific content is somewhat limited. Um, Journals also have review articles, which can be really great, but same kind of issue of you have to have a subscription to the journal to be able to access a lot of those things. And uh, sometimes those are also heavy. I mean, they're big, long articles that cover a lot that maybe is beyond the scope of what you might necessarily need to know at the point of care. So we ultimately converged on a few key differences that we see that also really kind of came to define our mission. First and foremost was the idea that a resource needs to exist that is completely free, no ads, no paywall, and designed in a way that it is rapidly accessible because at the point of care, I mean, seconds matter in terms of, you know, how much time you have to even think through a problem and get access to help to, to find information. Um, 
so, you know, this is kind of both a practical and a, and a moral philosophy because, you know, we think that even at mo the most well-resourced institutions, these existing materials can be really laborious to access. So even for wealthy places that can pay everything, we can still give an, uh, create a platform that's even easier and better for them too. So kind of from the moral angle, you know, I think of it from the perspective of, you know, we as a society, we pay so much money to develop research, run trials, publish that information, write review articles. And every stage of the process, it's money's changing hands. And, and we do need to fund these things. We need to make sure people are supported so they can do this. But we really think that at some point, which we think is the point of care, when we're actually talking about, you know, the nuts and bolts of how do you really optimally take care of patients, that money needs to be out of the equation and that the moral thing to do is to make sure that everyone that is actually taking care of a patient can easily access whatever information they need to, to do that to the best of their ability, regardless of their means. And so this is everything from academic institutions, small private practices, maybe individual practitioners in rural settings, or, or you know, especially international situations of, you know, less well-resourced countries that wouldn't even dream of having, you know, multi-thousand dollar, you know, licensing fees to be able to, to pay for this sort of thing. Um, so that's really one key piece. The other key piece is that we want content from any well-intentioned author to be welcome, to be able to integrate it into our system and to be able to publish it immediately. Um, you know, a wiki is essentially a blank canvas that can be anything that anybody envisions for that. And as a part of that, it also allows for this kind of unbound breadth of content. So we're, we sort of talked a little bit really focused on surgical case reference and the Jaffe manual, but our vision for this is much broader than this. You know, you can imagine there'd be a whole series of articles about comorbidities and how they relate to anesthetic considerations and the different drugs that we give or procedures we do in anesthesia, different subspecialties or monitoring tools we use. It's kind of endless uh, what, what people might write. So we've tried to, do, to take what is a totally blank slate and develop a framework in sort of a form of a table of contents that helps set the stage for what could be written in the future for the site and how to really in, in, encourage an organization and a consistency. And then the last piece is really about leveraging the fact that this is an interactive digital platform. This is not a static book with physical pages and printed text. And how can we best use that to create new tools that, that are useful? Um, so there's trivial examples of this, of things like little calculators that help you think about drug dosage or, you know, physiologic parameters or equipment sizing or different ways to rate the quality of articles or, you know, maybe when there's some practice variability, you can have polls within articles that different practitioners can vote on, you know, what they do at their institution. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about that. But one of the major things that we converged on was that we talked to a lot of institutions as we were conceptualizing this and really thinking about what could this be. And what we found is that almost every institution is independently maintaining some internal huge repository of content and to, to varying, you know, techniques of how they do this, everything, some people, like, for example, MGH had an internal wiki, which we talked about, but some places are using things like PDFs, like a, a, a shared drive of PDFs or Google documents or what have you. And they, they had challenges in even being able to maintain their own content. And all, because if it's a, you know, PDF, who can update it? Maybe it's only one person that has permissions to access that. And you have to go through so many channels to change that information. Um, and two, how do you disseminate that information within your institution? That was also challenging. But the bigger thing was that most of the content was actually really general. There would maybe be a little bit about surgeon preferences or, you know, specific practices at their institution or logistics of, you know, how the flow goes from the ICU to the OR or what drawer you find the clavidipine in or whatever else. But most of it was really general and would apply almost anywhere. And that, that sparked this idea that if we could somehow facilitate institutions being able to have a way to maintain only their specific content and allow general content to exist in a broader community that everyone can maintain, it'd be kind of a win-win situation for everybody because, 
the general content would be accessible to all. All that knowledge could be worked on together by people at many, many, many different institutions. And the, the private content would then become really easy to maintain because it's so limited in scope. Um, so that's where we built what we call this practice groups feature that you're probably going to hear a lot about today that uh, creates essentially a shadow wiki for institutions that's linked to the public wiki to try and achieve that goal. Um, so that's like getting a little bit into the nuts and bolts of how it is actually, you know, pretty different. And I, there's, you know, we could talk about that for a long time. So, but I'll, maybe I'll stop there and we can kind of see where else we want to go with that. Yeah, that's great, Chris. I mean, it's really uh, just so great to hear all the thought that went into this because I think it is so uh, well thought out. And and obviously, I've seen it, I've I've used it, and I can vouch for this myself. And and by the way, I should say, I should have said up front, I have no. I mean, neither do you guys. But I'll be very clear, I'm not getting anything for talking about this, and I certainly have no none of none of you, even the founders, do, but have any financial stake in this. So when I say that I've used it, it's great, and I, I'm you know very much uh, a fan of it. It's just because I think it works great, and I think it'll be helpful to. A lot of people. Um, but I do think that having that, I mean, it's really an, a kind of ingenious uh, approach is to have that kind of, you know, separate um, ability for for institutions to say, right, we're going to put stuff here that we don't want to share with the public, but that we want it to be available to our folks, but then have the bulk of stuff that is just going to be useful to everybody that is like a regular Wikipedia uh, page available to everybody. So that's fantastic. I think it would be helpful. Why don't one of you just kind of give us an example of a, a page. Now, I, I get and love that the idea here is that, you know, there is no one example because while we could talk about a case, as you said, there's also calculators and there could be articles on comorbidities and all that stuff. But I think just for an example, maybe let's take a, a case that one might find, the type of case that one might find on Wiki Anesthesia and, and what, you know, would be there and what one could get out of it. Yeah, sure. So, uh, imagine, let's say that you're a resident or maybe you're a, a new attending on call and you see that you're being asked to take over a room that's going to start an ECIC bypass. So it's a neurosurgical procedure, craniotomy. It's for extracranial to intracranial revascularization. Um, so it's kind of a complicated procedure. And maybe if you haven't done one before, you might not necessarily know the considerations that go into it that are really important. And you have a few minutes to develop a plan, maybe talk with your resident about it, get the room set up and get everything kind of situated. So even though everything is a blank slate, we do try to give frameworks and consistency where we can. So for surgical case articles, we have developed a template. And in particular, this template follows very deliberately a chronological flow. So the idea is that this article can kind of go with you as you do the case and work through it. Um, so if you go to the article for the craniotomy for ECIC bypass, the first section is going to be just a very brief overview about what the procedure is, what its indications are, so what the patient's coming for. For the example of ECIC bypass, most typically these are going to be patients with moya moya disease who have some limited perfusion to, to part of their brain. Um, and what the surgical procedure itself is going to entail, again, briefly, just so you can kind of have a big picture, 40,000-foot view of what to expect. Then it's going to, the article will transition to preoperative considerations. And so this is broken down into several, what we've sort of standardized as sections, things you want to consider from a patient evaluation standpoint. So again, this is focus. So for an ECIC bypass, you, you would want to do a focused neurologic exam to understand if there are any deficits that are either fixed or perhaps variable. And you want to be able to characterize those and document those. You want to understand from a cardiovascular standpoint, uh, you know, a lot of times patients coming for this procedure are have induced hypertension with something like midodrine to maintain their cerebral perfusion pressure. And so this is really important to know because you need to understand throughout your induction maintenance of anesthesia that you need to actually maintain that hypertension if you maintain what would otherwise be you know, quote unquote, normal maps for your average patient, you might be hypoperfusing their brain and that could lead to a worse neurologic outcome. Um, and so then, you know, getting into what labs and studies you might want in addition to kind of the traditional basic things, you know, these patients probably have cerebral angiography that could be useful to review, um, what you might need to do to set up the operating room. And so, you know, within this article, we handle some variability because some places may choose to do something like controlled hypothermia for this uh, or not. And so if you are going to do that, how do you actually achieve that? What equipment might you need for that? Um, and other considerations for, you know, 
management of postoperative nausea and vomiting afterwards. Um, we also have in the preoperative section a discussion always about the possibility of regional anesthesia or neuraxial anesthesia. And, you know, for some craniotomies, you might think of doing a scalp block, but actually for this procedure where you would really want to avoid any kind of vasoconstriction, we'd say that scalp blocks are relatively contraindicated in this case. And then you move into the interoperative section. So this is kind of leading you through, okay, now the patient you can sort of picture is now in the OR and ready to get started. And so you actually put your monitors on um, and how you actually induce and manage the airway. And so, for example, there's a lot of discussion here about maintaining hemodynamics and the different strategies you can, you'd use to do that to make sure that you don't have any hypotension throughout the induction period. Um, things you'd want to understand about positioning. Some of this is pretty standard to a craniotomy, but you do want to think about what it means to be in pins and in a Mayfield and how you worry about making sure that you maintain good venous drainage and verify that. that. Um, and then during the actual surgical procedure itself, there's sort of this critical part of the procedure where the anastomosis is done, which involves cross clamping where there could be cerebral ischemia. And how do you optimize that period? Do you, you know, you considering things like inducing burst suppression before the cross clamping, or if you are going to do hypothermia, what tar temperature you might target and how you think about rewarming afterwards uh, to start preparing for emergence. And then when you think about the disposition, you know, most of these patients typically go to the ICU. And, you know, what is going to be important for maintaining their hemodynamic status after that? Even though they have been revascularized, a lot of surgeons will prefer to maintain relative hypertension for a while afterwards because there can be a lot of vasospasm in these disturbed vessels what, during the surgical procedure itself. And this may affect some subtle things like, do you really want to put the head of the bed up? Because now all of a sudden you've introduced this gravitational you know, counteraction towards maintaining good cerebral perfusion. Um, so that's, that's just one example of... You know, some of the information that would be there. And again, it's really not trying to have walls and walls of text that are hard to get through. Most of these articles are a lot of bullet points. It's really meant to be the thing that you can on a glance skim through and see like the really most important things that you just cannot miss for these procedures. Um, and then if there is going to be some expansion, it's sort of out of the way from your sort of main view of how you would actually look at the, the, the highlights. That's great. And, you know, I'll tell you, if you told me tomorrow I had to do an ECIC procedure, I would go straight to this thing because I would have no idea. Right. And so if this didn't exist, what would I do? I mean, I would, you know, either be calling around to colleagues to ask them or I would be Googling it and I'd find some random articles maybe and I wouldn't know what to do with them, which does beg the question. You know, this is a great way to bypass having to read a ton of articles or at least, you know, a good starting point. But how can people know whether they can trust what they find on Wiki Anesthesia? And, you know, you might have someone say, well, how do I know some resident who didn't know what they were talking about or, for that matter, some attending who didn't know what they were talking about wrote this article and stuck it up there. And now I'm reading something that's totally wrong. So how, how can people know they can trust what they find? Yeah, happy to take that one. So, uh, yeah, when wikis first hit the scene 20 some odd years ago or so, they were definitely met with a lot of criticism, a lot of skepticism. Many people did not think that a, a decentralized network knowledge repository could ever be superior to centralized expert knowledge. Um, but in it was around 2005 or so, there was that high profile nature paper that's often cited comparing Wikipedia to Encyclopedia Britannica. And they found that, you know, when you compare the error rates between articles on these two resources, I mean, generally, the, the error rates were remarkably similar. And, you know, of course, today, Wikipedia is generally regarded to be a reputable, uh, trustworthy resource. And we're also now starting to see the rise of medical wikis, uh, which is exciting. I know, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there were a number of attempts at doing this that, that were not necessarily all that successful. But uh, more recently, we're, we're starting to see some thriving communities in several areas of medicine. So like emergency medicine has Wickham, radiology has Radiopedia, physical therapy has one called Physiopedia. And, and these are all um, uh, very um, th thriving communities uh, with a lot, getting a lot of page views, a lot of content being generated. And it's, uh, it's encouraging to see these communities starting to develop. And um, that being said, you know, while the, the power of the crowd is immense at making sure that content is, is staying on track and that errors are being uh, removed as quickly as possible, we're also cognizant of the fact that 
we need to take it a level further. So Chris is actually also implementing technical features as well to try to ensure the, the veracity of the information. Maybe Chris, do you want to touch on a couple of the things that, that you've been building? Yeah. So, so a couple of things. So some of these are actually baked into just the stock media wiki software, which is what powers Wikipedia and a lot of these other wikis. And then some of these are also features that I've built on top of that, that are kind of customized for our use. Um, but again, just to, just to zoom out to the sort of 40,000 foot view, once we have the community that is invested in this, we really see this wiki community as serving as constant large scale peer review, kind of on another level than just your standard reviewer number one, two, and three that decide whether your article is actually should be published or not. Um, so a couple of the, the, of these specific features is one, we've made citation of references extremely easy. So the editor, when you're editing content on the wiki functions a lot like Microsoft Word, you don't have to be a technical person. It's not coding jargon if you don't want it to be. Um, and there's a tool right in the toolbar that works, I would say even better than a lot of the integrated tools in Microsoft Word. So for example, you just click the site button and you can copy paste almost any flavor of a reference you can think of. So the URL to a PubMed article or the PubMed ID article, or just the number or an ISBN number and hit a button and it will go out and fetch all the metadata and information from that reference automatically for you, add the citation and then add it to the references, the bottom of the article. So it should make it really streamlined and easy for adding the references that you know as you're writing this content. Um, a couple other things. So let's say you are the expert on an ECIC bypass and you're very passionate about making sure that that article stays accurate. Uh, with any article, when you're registered for the site, you can choose to watch that article. It's just an option in the menu for that article itself. And when anyone changes that article, you'll get an email that says, this article changed, this was the change. And then you can come and review that and decide, yes, I agree with this. Yes, actually, we should add a little bit more about that because that's a great point. Or mm, I'm not so sure about that. Let me just add a little more kind of qualitative context to just say maybe not. Um, and then there are also global editorial tools on the site that for, we can look really bird's eye view of everything that's changing on the site. So the things that we check often are there's a recent changes tool. We can see any article is changed and edited by anyone anywhere. And it, so you just click through the, you know, 10 things that changed in a given afternoon and just quickly glance at them and decide if and what you need to do anything about that. But the thing, again, similar to the lesson that was learned about Wikipedia is the people who are putting in the time to try and edit articles are generally doing a good job. They're doing it because they care. They're at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Passionate about it. They're not getting anything out of it no, in terms of money or anything else. Um, and, the and we found that true. The vast majority of edits are very high quality. That, that people are contributing to this. Yeah, I, I think that's great. It right. sounds like there's a lot of ways in which uh, this, you know, you got the, as you said, the kind of basic idea that we think these things, these crowdsourced pieces of information tend to be very accurate. And then on top of it, there's multiple, um, you know, other reasons why this specifically should be um, doing pretty well. And then, you know, one of the nice things is, at least for, for trainees out there, whether you're a med student and you're going to kind of, Think about think about how you want to approach a case and talk to your resident about it or a resident who's going to present a case, you know, proposal to an attending. You've got that back up, too. So you're going to this is probably going to make you sound a lot smarter than you would have. And then you can present this. And, you know, you're, if your attending says, uh, you know, the way I envision this is if my resident said to me, here's what I want to do. And if I say that doesn't sound right, you know, what made you want to do that? And they say, well, it's what I read on Wiki Anesthesia. Then either I'm going to say, you know, hmm, I'm pretty confident that's not right. So we should change that. Or maybe I have something to learn. But either way, you know, I think there's going to be that community impetus to want to go back and make sure what's on there is is accurate and up to date. Um, so I think that's fantastic. All right. So how I mean, people who want to access this, I think anybody can. Right. We gave the URL. Mm -hmm. They can just go to that URL and access it, though. 
universities that don't yet have their own um, separate section aren't going to be able to access other places, separate sections. They can just access the kind of global public part of Wiki Anesthesia, right? Stay with us. We'll be right back with more on how to access Wiki Anesthesia in just a sec. All right, we're back. Here's how to access Wiki Anesthesia and get the most out of it. Yeah, so as you said, wikianesthesia.org, anybody can see our public content straight from there. And then there's several ways to find things within the site. So there's a global search tool, which is pretty effective. It just If you know exactly what you're looking for, you can find any articles that are going to have information about that. We do also have a table of contents, which is trying to guide this structure. So if you just want to browse generally, what are the kinds of articles we're trying to create and how might they be organized? You can find that there. We have a couple other tools where our editorial team has been able to flag the higher quality articles to demonstrate that. So when you search for an article on the site, there's a little icon next to the title of the site. And that will demonstrate whether this is like a really comprehensive fleshed out article or kind of just a, you know, bare bone shell, still not really a whole lot yet fleshed out in that. Um, and, and then, as you say, depending on whether you're a public user with no account or whether you have created an account and you're logged in and whether your institution is actually using this for their own internal content, what you see might vary. So one of the things I, I when we were talking about the actual layout of the article itself, I hadn't mentioned was at the top of the article, if you're just a public user, you just see the article. If you're logged in, you get several tabs at the top of the article any logged in user will get a tab for personal notes. So if you want to take personal notes about an ECIC bypass, maybe just for you to remember this surgeon wants this, or I, oh, don't forget to bring the, you know, phenylephrine drip or whatever it might be, um, you can store that information. And that's private just to you. No one else can see your personal notes, even though it is stored in a wiki article in the system. And if your institution is affiliated, then there will be another tab so, for example, at Hopkins, you have a Hopkins article tab in addition to the public article tab. And so for an article on the same content, this is how you seamlessly switch between the general information that applies to everybody and the little nuggets of information that are specific to what's done at Hopkins. And so this is a little bit of a, a user interface kind of trick that we developed to try and make this so seamless and easy and also to encourage people to contribute to the public content. If you're reading the Hopkins article about how an ENT case is done and you have a few extra minutes, maybe you click over to the public article and see, oh, there's not really that much here yet. Maybe I can just move some of this other stuff that we have you know, into the editor and be able to, you know, contribute to the, to the public knowledge there really, really effectively. Um, so, so yeah, that, and then I guess the other thing to mention too, is that, uh, you know, you can, if there are any questions about any of this, you can reach us at contact at wikianesthesia.org. We also have a contact form on our website. If there, if you do have any questions or difficulties with any kind of accessibility or anything like that. Um, and we'll talk more about, you know, how you could get involved with different aspects of what we're doing probably a little bit later, but. Right. All right. So yeah. fantastic. Lot easy to get there. Lots to see there makes total sense to set up an account. So you have even more, uh, you know, access and more options. And then, right. um, and I love the the personal notes part because obviously that's really great. And then you you know can see those every time you go back to that article. And then um, uh, obviously if your institution joins, yeah. Yeah, and just the one other thing actually to mention too is that when you're logged in, if you have an institution that you're a part of, all of the global tools on the site integrate with all of those private articles too. So your search box is going to find all of your Hopkins articles in addition to the public articles. So you, you do have that kind of one-stop shop for everything that your account has access to across the public institutional and personal modalities. That's awesome. All right. One other so, point on that is uh, you can also be in multiple different practice groups. So if you went to residency at Hopkins, you can you know have all of that knowledge. But then say you move over to Stanford, you can also join the Stanford practice group and kind of bounce between instances so you can see the protocols from the different institutions. And, and the philosophy that we're encouraging with this with institutions is let people maintain their access after they leave. Because we've heard a lot about how people want to know five or 10 years out of practice, like what are they actually doing back at Stanford, especially if maybe they're, they didn't end up at some quaternary complex center um, and that, you know, knowledge would still be useful. And at all the institutions we've worked with seem to love that idea of just because ma it maintains that alumni connection too. Yeah. So, 
so yeah, that, that, that persists, you know, and again, you can be in multiple practice groups, even within a residency, you know, at Stanford, we, the residents will rotate at Stanford and at a VA hospital and at a County hospital, and they all can have separate little silos for their, their institutional content. Awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. So do you think waking anesthesia can be useful for people with different experience levels? Yeah, definitely. Maybe maybe this is a good one for Tony. Maybe let's uh, let's get Tony in, in here. What, what do you what do you think uh, as a resident? Can you share that perspective? Yeah, definitely. So as a new resident, um, I, I'm sure you can all maybe remember just even the basics of anesthesia were incredibly challenging, right? And so anything that we can use to help um, uh, uh, d- decrease that uh, knowledge burden really helps us as residents. So being able to just quickly glance through a one-page article to understand the nuts and bolts of a preferred anesthetic plan for given surgery with any special considerations to important steps, that helped me tremendously as I was pre-oping for my patients. Um, I felt like I could focus more on just the patient-specific factors and not have to you know, dig through textbooks and, and online resources for all this other information. Um, so, you know, for example, you know, things that maybe even that might seem obvious to others, but, you know, uh, to a to a new resident, like whether or not an arterial line is needed, um, right? Whether there's a special type of ET tube or uh, intubation technique, or whether paralytic is needed, or even contraindicated, or having specific drugs available, um, Lasix, Manitol, things that maybe uh, if you didn't know, you'd have to in the middle of the case call your tech or call another resident to help and get it from a central pharmacy. Um, those are all things that really um, uh, Wiki anesthesia helped. Uh, me to prepare for as a new resident. And um, the great thing is, you know, as a resident, because I'm, uh, because you're going through so many different learning environments and cases, you can, as you learn things, add it on the fly, you know, oh, I forgot, you know, uh, this one thing, this one time, let me add it. So make sure that no one else forgets it in the future. Yeah. Awesome. I, I think that, you know, this just strikes me as something that is useful from everyone from a a med student who is trying to decide even whether they want to go into anesthesiology just to kind of get a feel for what, what kind of cases do they do and what are some of the questions people ask and, you know, what is it, what are the uh, different um, aspects of this specialty uh, through obviously a student who's on a rotation, obviously as Tony just laid out for junior residents, senior residents as well for reviewing things that they've already been through or doing those more complex cases. And I can tell you from my own experience, 100% for attendings, it is super useful, right? To go back and see, especially if you're doing a case you, you don't do all the time or haven't done in a while. I have, I won't name names, but I have this really great memory when I was a resident, one of the long-standing, well-regarded cardiac attendings. Uh, I got assigned to work with him the next day doing a craniotomy. And I called him to pre-op and he said, Jed, I haven't done a craniotomy in 30 years. So you tell me what we're doing. <laughs> and so, you know, that would have been a great opportunity for him to, to, to use what anesthesia had it existed then to look it up. So I, I think absolutely I would agree with you guys. It's, it's applicable to people on, on any level of experience. So uh, we've, talked, we've touched on this, but obviously while there is a lot about anesthesia that is applicable across institutions, there obviously are different uh, approaches based on institution and different hospitals or different institutions may practice things differently or have different tweaks. So we talked about it, but say a little more about how this can be tailored to individual hospitals and institutions. Yeah, and so that's where our practice groups really shine. Um, so for any general article, just to rehash, any general article – can also have a practice group art version of that article um, where you talk about those little uh, institutional preferences or nuances that are different. So at Hopkins, um, our practice group articles account for a lot of um, different surgical considerations, um, right? So some surgeons might want the bed rotated 90 degrees or 180 degrees, or some might mount a small amount of heparin with this procedure, but some others don't, or some want antibiotics or some don't. So those are things that um, ahead of time, we will be able to know based on the surgeon. And as residents, um, you know, we're often assigned to different areas of the hospital on like a monthly basis. Um, And so it can be difficult to adapt to constantly rotating learning environments. Um, We have, you know, very little continuity with surgeons or the OR staff um, to communicate these workflow differences. Um, And so, um, uh, so those surgeon preferences really help there. And we at Hopkins have even taken it a step further and we've created a kind of informal resident guides 
um, where we talk about, you know, uh, what order sets to use for epidurals or um, what your starting doses are for your uh, continuous infusions and uh, how to ma- how to make pediatric drug dilutions when you're on peds or even just like where the call rooms are and the ICU and what the door codes are. Um, those are things that can be used in the practice groups. That's awesome. Yeah, Bear, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if there's any institutions out there that are interested in getting set up with a practice group, we'd obviously be very happy to, to help facilitate that. You can just reach out to us. Probably the easiest way is just um, emailing at contact at uh, wikianesthesia.org. Great. Yeah, it seems like, and, and let me just, I think I know the answer to this, but there's no cost, right, to institutions? No, to do. no, no. Yeah, no cost. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so it seems like a no-brainer. Easy to do, a big-time adding value. I know it has at Hopkins and, and can't imagine it wouldn't anywhere else. And it sounds like, you know, MGH, which had, as you said, their own kind of separate system, was able to kind of migrate that over. And I, I can't imagine they would have done that if it took a huge amount of work. So it was probably fairly easy to do. And now they can add what they have to, to this kind of um, larger body. And as you guys said, you've built in really wonderful tools that make it seamless. So you can search and you can see it all when you search and uh, including your institution's separate stuff and the, the public stuff. So it, it really seems like a no brainer to me. Um, and I'm glad we're a part of it. And one other thing I would just hit on related to practice variability, because even if you don't have a practice group in the public article, there could be some controversy about how things are done. And so there are a couple ways we approach that. One is the style of the article, because it is often at a fairly high level. It's not many walls of text with a ton, a ton of granularity. Some of that won't even really get into too much in the actual content of the article itself. But when there is some variability, we do have a couple of ways to deal with that. One is just in the article, you acknowledge the variability and say, you know, for an awake cranny, some people do the first part as a GA and some do it as a Mac and you just list those possibilities. Um, and you can have a little bit about pros and cons and discussions related to that. The other thing is every article also has a discussion board at the level of the article itself so that people can start discussions about different questions. And you can have different people chiming in sort of meta to the article itself to decide what should actually be in the article and sort of work through any disagreements or, or you know, uh, discussions there. And then another feature that we have built uh, but have not broadly deployed on the site because we're still trying to figure out exactly how we should do it is a polling platform. So that when there is something really interesting about, well, would you do a central line for your kidney transplants or whatever it might be, you can have an in-baked right in line poll of the of that question and see the results in real time so that you can acknowledge that there are kind of many ways to skin a cat and there's not necessarily a correct or incorrect answer. Um, but you can appreciate sort of how much people are doing what in different places. Yeah, awesome. All right. So, you know, obviously, I think we've we've made it pretty clear why people would want to access the information on wiki anesthesia. Why might someone want to author something? Why would someone potentially want to contribute to what to the information there? I mean, one one primary reason is just if, if the philosophy resonates. I mean, if, if this is something that somebody wants to do just philosophically, it's it's a great opportunity to get involved, contribute to a larger body of, of knowledge that everyone can access from anywhere and everywhere in the world. Uh, but then also there, there are opportunities to get some, some credit for the, for the authorship as well. So a number of institutions out there are providing some level of, uh, of academic credit for substantial contributions. And I, I think uh, Johns Hopkins is uh, one of those institutions. Stanford obviously does that as well. Um, Tony, do you want to talk about what uh, Hopkins has done as far as uh, recognizing credit? Yeah. So um, credit-wise, so ACGME requires that all residents have some form of scholarly work um, during their residency. And so um, we here at Hopkins and also at Stanford have decided that uh, formally writing five complete articles satisfies um, that requirement. And so uh, if you're any program directors out there who are looking for a creative solution for their residents, uh, this is a great way to get involved. Uh, Again, reach out, contact at wikianesthesia.org. We can help get that set up for you. Um, And then I'll also just add, you know, as a resident, uh, a credit aside, the process of pre-oping for a patient uh, is basically synonymous with creating these articles, whether or not you're doing it in your own head or on your own notes or 
publicly on the Wiki Anesthesia site. Um, and so for me, um, that's what I've tried to do. And it really helps also to solidify the information for my own learning. Um, and so um, I know some attendings have even gone as far as to tell uh, their residents, you know, the night before to, hey, you know, as part of the pre-oping, create this article, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and there's even potentially a level of medical student engagement that could be incorporated into that as well. So yeah, great learning opportunities, but also a great way to get credit. One other comment on the on the credit aspect. So the, the nice thing about Wiki Anesthesia, it has a a contribution or authorship log. So if a, if a resident uh, is is interested in, in getting credit for for contributing, a detailed report can be generated to you know specify exactly what that person did over over a period of time. So it's a very, yeah. very objective measure of contribution. Yeah, and I love that as a program director, you know, I, I think this is fantastic. I think it's a great way for residents to get what is truly and, and becoming more and more accepted, these kinds of non-traditional scholarship, right? So, yes, it's not a first author, you know, paper in, in anesthesia and analgesia, but it is scholarly. You know, let's be honest. This is, you know, doing these kinds of works are more and more important in terms of building the scholarly content in anesthesia. And this absolutely does count by by the ACGME rules and should. And so, uh, but I love that you can see, right? So, you know, you can see what a resident has actually done. And if you as a program director want to be, want to say, look, you know, I'm not going to say that just any article counts. You got to show it to me. I want to see how many references you put, you know, you can decide how you want to do this. But I think that, you know, this is something that people, when I have seen residents who have done this so far, they've done them well. They've put a lot of work into them and I absolutely think it should uh, count for that, that scholarship. And it's a great way for residents Rather than, you know, feeling pressure to do some scholarly work that is not feeling related to their day-to-day work, this is really directly related to what they're doing every day. They can choose what they want to do based on what they're, you know, going to be doing the next day in the OR or what they've done several times and really uh, both learn a lot for what they're doing on a day-to-day level and meet this requirement. So I, I think it makes a ton of sense. And I think just to, to add a couple things to that. So one, you know, I think there's this really unique thing that the, uh, this wiki approach provides, which takes people who are learners and turns them into teachers almost in the same moment. I mean, normally in the traditional pathway that you would do that, you'd learn for a long time as a student and a resident, you'd get some fancy faculty title, and then years down the road, you'd write a textbook chapter. But this literally can be, you're learning it, and as you learn it, you organize it in your head, and then you, while it's fresh in your mind, present it and publish it all kind of in one little singularity. That to me is really unique and cool and nothing else really quite does that in, I think the educational space quite in that way. I also think that in addition, there's value here for attendings too. And for people who are junior faculty who are trying to create articles. So on every article, the top authors are listed for that article itself. And while it is tricky that, you know, a wiki article is never fixed in time. It's not you write it and it's perfect and then you hit publish and save and it's done. It is this constant evolutionary process of many, 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 sometimes tiny little edits that over the aggregate become this complete article. So no one can really claim ownership over an article and certainly can't really claim it permanently, but you can show. So for every article, you can generate a report of who contributed what to the article and see that this person actually wrote 90% of the article and this person wrote another 5% or 10%. And we do prioritize the authorship for an article based on that. So there is something analogous to the idea of a first author and I think as things like A&P committees do sort of modernize and think about what does it mean to be a prominent, notable academic anesthesiologist, things like this really do philosophically satisfy exactly what they're looking for, even if they're not necessarily the most traditional paradigms that would be used for considering for promotion. Absolutely. All right. So let's say people are out there and they're thinking, yep, I want to get involved. How do I do it? What would you tell them? So step one, go to the website. Uh, step two, if you want to get more involved, you create an account and you'll need to verify an email address after that. If you want to edit content, as soon as you create your account and verify your email address, you can start editing content. The account that you've created is what we call a little bit of a provisional account initially. And this is really not to have extremely scrutinous kind of making sure you have the right credentials or anything. This is to make sure essentially you're not a spam bot that's trying to actually just vandalize articles. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll look at the first few edits that you do 
And if it looks like you're making good faith efforts towards trying to improve the content, we will essentially promote your account to be what we call an author. And then from that point, all of the edits that you make appear in real time. And so from any article, when you're logged in, there's an edit button at the top of the page. You hit the edit button. That article just turns into essentially a word processor. Seamlessly, it looks exactly like the published web page, except you can change things. And you can change the text and create tables or add bullet points or add images or whatever it is you want to do. And you hit save and it's immediately published after that. Um, and again, I, I really want to highlight the difference of editing a wiki article. It is a fundamentally different philosophy. There have been a lot of people we've talked to who are excited about getting involved, but they are paralyzed by the fear of perfection, where they don't want to edit anything and because they're worried that it's just not going to be exactly right, and they want to make sure they have all 50 references figured out and every little detail worked out. If you make any contribution of content to this site, any bullet point you add, any table you add, any little nugget of information, it is additive. It is a step forward. And that the, the power of this thing is that a little step forward from hundreds of people, thousands of people becomes this massive, you know, impossible for a small team of authors and editors to, to match kind of thing. And so anytime you see something on the site, just click edit, change it, make it a little bit better, hit save. Don't take a lot of time to do it. You don't need to. And other people will see it. Other people will come along. They'll build upon what you did, get comfortable with that workflow. And all of a sudden contribution becomes super easy and super stress-free and really, really easy. If you want to get involved beyond just content authorship, we would love that too. So we have, you know, things that we're looking for are uh, additional people to join the editorial team. So we'd like to have section editors where we have people who are experts in different contents like cardiac or neuro or peds or other sections like comorbidities or drugs or whatever it is that is of interest to someone where we would have those people really paying a lot of attention to the articles that happen within that space and help maintain those in, in a more direct way. So we'd love to hear from people who are interested in getting involved like that. Um, at the moment, all of the technical development, all the extra features, I've been doing that myself. Um, and I would love to have more people who maybe have a CS background, maybe are interested in software development that would think, oh, this really cool kind of interactive tool that could be built in a platform like this. We have sandbox servers. And we can just spin up a sandbox server, let somebody go nuts, write whatever it is they want to write. And if it works out to be great, we'd love to be able to put that live on the server too. So definitely like to hear from people who would want to get involved in more of the technical side. Um, and then, you know, Tony can talk a little bit more about how institutions, I think, can engage if they really are interested in this practice groups the feature. Yeah, exactly. So if there's any um, anyone at either an institution or just a hospital um, and they want to have kind of their own practice group, um, anyone can create it. Um, but I am offering myself as a resource to just help um, to facilitate that process since that is a little bit of a larger endeavor than just, you know, editing a handful of articles here and there. Um, so you can reach out to us as well for any of that. Awesome. All right. And so this is just, you know, I, I'm, I've no doubt this is going to be really more and more important as we get further on into people adding to this, the content grows, people are going to use it more and more. And I think it's just going to build on itself. What do you guys think the future holds for, for this and, and just, you know, kind of um, technology and anesthesia in, in learning in general? Yeah, well, certainly for the future for this, it's, it's realizing the vision that we've talked about. And the key part of that is building the community to be able to do this. One of the things that's really interesting is if you look at the early stages of Wikipedia for a couple of years, there really wasn't that much content. There weren't that many articles. There weren't that many users. And then at some point, there was this inflection point where enough people came to the site and this is purely a numbers game of there's some very small subset of users that actually contribute content. Wikipedia, most people, like 95% of people never edit an article in their whole life. But if your big N is big enough, that 5% of power users all of a sudden becomes very powerful. And so we are trying to get over that sort of inflection hurdle to have enough engagement with the community to have that community and may be able to build this content and maintain it. Um, and then it's really about 
what what else can we do with this? I you know I have a lot of ideas, a lot of stuff we haven't really had a chance to get into about future technical features that we can think about how we really leverage this digital platform to build really neat things on top of all of this community curated content. Um, and so I think the possibilities for that really are pretty darn endless. And it's just it's just going to be a matter. We just keep pushing forward. Everything is additive, and then eventually we just get there as more and more people find the site and engage with us. Awesome. All right. Fantastic guys. Uh, let's move on to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Uh, we have an audience, uh, random recommendation that someone sent in. Uh, this is from, and I apologize because via email, there's no way I can know how to pronounce your name. Um, but it, I'm going to go with it. It's Vasil Katarenchuk and Vasil recommends a book called Dark Secrets. It's a Swedish detective novel. It's written by Michael, and again, I'm sorry about the name pronunciation here, but Michael Hajorth and Hans Rosenfeld. And it uh, seems like they have really have a, a franchise in Sweden. And now uh, this one has been published here in the United States. It's available um, uh, on Amazon, Kindle, et cetera. And um, I haven't read it yet, but uh, according to Vasil, it's really good. And so it's on my list. And uh, that's a great shout out. Um, let's turn to you guys. What do you have to recommend to the audience? So my recommendation is uh, for the TV series, the HBO series Watchmen. Um, it's based on the DC comic series, and it's kind of a remix of other versions of Watchmen that have come out. Uh, it uses the 1921 Tulsa race massacre as a foundation and sets the stage for this alternative future reality that is extremely pertinent to a lot of issues that we're wrestling with today. Um, but it's just extremely well done in terms of all of the different ways that different characters and different relationships and, and things interplay. And it's really very artistic and just, it's just excellent. It, so it's great. Totally agree. My wife and I really enjoyed it too. How about you, Barrett? Uh, yeah, a book uh, I recently read would, and would highly recommend Deep Medicine by Eric Topol. I just I think it's a, a fascinating exploration of how AI is in the process of transforming healthcare. So it goes through what's what's been done to date and projects forward and what the, you know, explores what the future could look like. Just re- really enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah, and Eric Topol such a such a great thinker in in medicine, mm-hmm. so really fantastic. Great recommendation. And Tony, how about you? Um, so one of my all-time favorite shows is Money Heist, um, or also known as uh, La Casa de Papel. Uh, it's originally uh, filmed in Spain and then was acquired by Netflix um, in the middle because it was so good. Um, but it basically, it's a crime drama, um, and it it's centered around these uh, quote-unquote criminals. But you're it's filmed in a way where you're all where you're rooting for them, um, and each. Uh, season is basically one big heist that they do um and it, it it's uh it does such a good job just it's just so suspenseful and like there's so many plot twists and the, the whole like the you know the thought behind the heist itself and like how they do each part is, is so interesting so yeah one of my all-time favorite shows awesome i've never heard of it but that's great i will add it to the list um and i'm going to recommend one that's a little i don't know if people have heard of this one but I actually heard it recommended on a uh, podcast I listen to. It's called Dairy Girls, as in D-E-R-R-Y, Dairy, uh, Ireland, Dairy Girls. It's on Netflix. It was a super popular show in Ireland, and then Netflix acquired it, so much like you were talking about, Tony. And uh, it's really well done. It's very funny. Uh, the group of girls who are the main characters are fantastic actors, and they are, and it's hilarious. But it's also really well done, and it's set in the backdrop of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and so it's you know, you get that history and you see how it kind of starts to affect their lives, but, but still with a lot of humor and, um, uh, innocence, uh, in there, it's, it's really well done. Um, not something I would have ever come across unless I'd heard it recommended, but, um, worth checking out on Netflix. All right, gentlemen, thank you for the recommendations. Thanks for the great work you're doing with Wiki Anesthesia. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us, Jed. Really thanks. appreciate it. It was wonderful. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. 
If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.